0: good morning good afternoon good evening beautiful people am i familiar is it me it's selena how you doing it's been a while since we've seen each other face to face but good news the studio is done wallpaper goes up tomorrow and then i am like spending the whole weekend making it gorgeous we're definitely waiting on a couple pieces that won't be here yet but we're gonna jump in there and start filming podcasts there again even if it's not completely done because I miss reading the comments about the stuff that I do with my face during the show. But because this has been a crazy week and I'm actually leaving right now to pick up Chris from the airport, I have my prologue of my book for you. Um, it's actually the recording that was going to go into Audible. So it's like a really nice um, prologue for my book. If you haven't checked it out, um, you can get my book on Amazon and soon Audible. I, I really hope you guys enjoy this and I'm really enjoying reading your stories. And I hope all is well. And I love you, so stay spooky and enjoy. Welcome, welcome to the haunted estate. Welcome to the reading of Hollow. Written and read by the author, Selena Myers. I dedicate this book to you. You gave me a chance and believed in me when I didn't believe in myself. My followers, I consider you all friends, have changed my entire world and showed me how truly beautiful life can be when you choose kindness and love. If you're going through hard times or feel lost, please always remember that things can change overnight. They did for me. Love and believe in you always, Selena. Prologue, 1725. The air had never been colder than it was that winter. It was preceded by the hottest summer the quaint village of Black Creek had ever witnessed. Even the elders had never experienced heat like they did that year. The trees around the small town wilted under the sun's weight. The wooden veins of the soft maples were brittle to the touch. For the first time in forty two years since the founding of Black Creek, the creek that the community was named after ran dry. Then, in July, the beloved town priest became delusional with the disease of the mind. The local healer and doctor said that he'd have more time, but the heat seeped in and dried up his head, just like the river. He called out late into the darkness of the nights and into the wee morning hours. He cursed the god he had so faithfully worshipped and preached about for his entire life, Somehow, the only thing he had ever believed in brought him no peace in his last moments. When the ladies who cared for him were not taking turns at his bedsides, he screamed hate-filled sentences at the top of his lungs, his breath escaping as if fire from the heat of the day had built inside him. He had been at the birth of all the village's children, and the mothers he had tended to now dabbed tepid cloths at his brow. Silently, reflecting on how this man, now ranted and raved, had blessed their babies with the Lord prayer, had gently made tiny crosses on their soft newborn foreheads. In August, he hung naked out of the window of his small cabin, screaming at the sun, telling the town that they were cursed, that they were witnessing the end of days. At first, the people were scared of his warnings. They pulled back shrinking against their walls as if the mere closeness to his words would make them come true. But in the last two weeks of his life, they were laughing at the crazy old man down the street as if his ramblings were entertainment. He passed away on the 20th of September. The next week, the heat broke. The villagers looked with despair at their meager harvest. There was not enough food to last the end of the year, let alone the long winter. The dry summer had destroyed most of their crops and livestock. Any prosperity and supplies that had survived the drought were dwindling quickly. They rationed their food, even going without when they could stand it. New mothers found their milk running dry. The nights were full of the sounds of murmured prayers of relief to God himself and the ear-piercing cries of a child's hunger pains. The villagers recalled the priest's words and now found no humor in them. It truly did seem to be the end of days. In November, the cool weather rolled in, and with that, a stranger. Eli Bellamy, who had been born and raised in Black Creek, stood deep in thought. His errand to buy what little grain he could was all but forgotten as he looked at the plain buildings where the villagers lived and worked. At this time of day, people should be milling around, bartering for goods, the street full of children, dodging carts and horses and playing the same games he had as a child. Instead, the road was bare, except for a few miserable-looking folk who sat with their backs propped up against the walls of their dwellings. Arms crossed and deep in thought. Life in the village had always been hard. When Eli was only three years old, his mother died giving birth to her second child. The baby boy died as well. Stricken with grief, Matthew Bellamy spent more time lamenting his wife's death than paying attention to his only living child. Within weeks, his unmarried sister-in-law, Agnes, stepped in and took charge of her younger sister's child. Aunt Aggie was the closest thing to a mother Eli had ever had. He had spent more and more time in the rooms where she lived behind her cheese shop. He spent hours with his aunt in the kitchen helping her make the cheeses she sold in the front of the shop and listening to her gossip about the goings-on in town. Eli often spent the night with Aggie, as his father barely acknowledged his existence when he was home from the farm. He even looked forward to one day running the cheese shop himself. By the time Eli was twelve, Matthew had grown tired of his son spending more time in the shop than the fields. He put a stop to the visits with Aunt Aggie, though she continued to keep a close eye on Eli. When Eli was 18 years old, his life changed forever. Victor Martin returned to the village after having moved to the city and marrying Luck Sutton 20 years earlier. The Suttons arrived in town in a horse-drawn cart with their daughters, 16-year-old Eleonora and 12-year-old Jeanne. The entire family was dressed in much more expensive clothing than the people of the village, and they brought with them jewelry and artwork the likes of which had never been seen in Black Creek. Some folks were wary of the family's wealth, but the Suttons moved in with the Martins in their simple old cottage, and they were kind and generous to their new neighbors. Soon, those had once felt intimidated welcomed them with open arms. Eleanor's skin was pale, and a slight splatter of brown freckles graced the cheeks of her ever-smiling face. Her hair was copper, her eyes chestnut, her day's dresses perfect pale yellows, and all blended as neatly as a painting. Eleonora carried her own hue that stood out against the dimness of the colors of the village. In fact, she associated specific colors with the people she saw every day. Her parents were the blue of the sky, always watching over her and protecting her. The baker was the white flour he turned into soft bread. Her little sister, Jeanne, a soft, kind child, was pink. The beloved village priest was maroon, warm with the love he bestowed upon his congregation. And the man on the edge of town who drank too much and beat his wife was the grayness of despair and misery. Whenever Eleonora strolled through the village, everyone around her shimmered with the various colors. She never understood how others couldn't see the colors that seemed to emanate from the people around her. She found herself quite enjoying life in the village. She had grown close with Alice, the girl who lived next door, and they often spent what free time they had in each other's company, sitting and chatting near a creek or helping the other with housework. Alice devised an ingenious way for the girls to say good morning and good night to each other. They had two matching small brass bells. She gave one to Eleanora. Alice rang hers every morning, and Eleonora would answer with her own ring. They repeated the ritual every evening before blowing out the last candle. When she looked at Alice, Eleonora saw bright red. Her friend was feisty and full of love and passion. Everyone she loved collected in her mind, their colors representing flowers. She felt so blessed that her mind was always full of the bouquet of the ones who meant the most to her. Eli had been struck speechless the first time he laid eyes on the new girl. She graced him with her radiant smile whenever their paths crossed. But, as she was usually in the company of her friend Alice, Eli found himself unable to respond. Instead, he peeked through windows and from behind trees, just to watch her walk by and take in the soft melodies she hummed as she strolled through the streets. He was not alone in his quiet observance, Eleanora had taken as much notice of him as he had of her, and it started one evening when she was walking to the butchers to pay for her family's weekly bill. Eli walked past her with some friends on their way to the public house. He hadn't seen her, but she'd noticed him immediately. His tall, muscular frame caught her eye, and when he laughed a deep, genuine laugh at something, his friend said she knew he was the one for her. After that, She looked for him, wherever she could. She sat in the window, claiming she needed light to work on her embroidery, but in actuality she was waiting to see him walk past. At the fair that summer, she snuck glances down the tables so she could observe him chatting confidently with the other local boys. In the evening, she drew soft portraits of him by candlelight with her dull charcoal pencils. She would ring her bell to say goodnight to Alice, then push the scraps of paper under her pillow. Eleanora fell asleep, hoping her dreams would be full of images of Eli's face. Alice often teased her, asking if she had her eye on any of the village boys, but Eleonora always said no. Yet, when she looked at Eli, he shimmered with the yellow of the sun. Aunt Aggie was the one who finally got them to speak to each other. Aggie had seen her nephew blush whenever the girl was in sight, "'and observed Eleonora turning to watch him after she passed her on the street. "'She could not help but notice, despite their obvious attraction, "'neither had ever spoken to each other. "'She waited for the perfect opportunity to get them face to face. "'One afternoon, Eli stopped by the shot to lend a hand in wrapping cheese wheels. Aggie was about to close up for the night when Eleonora walked past the window.' "'Rushing into the kitchen, Eggie grabbed her nephew "'and babbled something about needing his help "'and then dragged him out of the shop. "'The moment they were outside, she looked around frantically. "'Her quarry was only a short distance down the street. "'Eleanora!' "'The words sounded sharp, coming from Eggie's mouth. "'Eli watched in horror as the girl turned. "'See here, my boy's been watching you intently since you arrived.' "'Eli tried to shink from his aunt, but she held his wrist tightly.' I've also seen you staring at him when he's not looking. Eleonora's eyes shot to the dirt road in embarrassment as curious onlookers began to gather, but Aggie was not finished. It seems to me that neither of you knows what you're doing, so I'm taking matters into my own hands. Aggie pushed Eli forward, a smile engulfing her entire face as she stood back in triumph. Eli stumbled a bit, but righted himself a mere foot from Eleonora. To his surprise her cheeks were as red as the harvest moon. So much so that her freckles had all but disappeared into her blush. He cleared his throat. Hello, Eleanora." Hello, Eli. The girl bit her lip and then smiled. Aha! eggy exclaimed, seeing the connections as their eyes met. She almost felt the pull, like two magnets drawing together. I need two pails of water from the well. You two can fetch it for me. When neither moved, she gave Eli another push, and that was it. They married two summers later. Eleonora was the definition of perfection. She and her mother had dyed rolls of cotton a soft buttery yellow for her wedding dress, and Jeanne wove her a crown out of flowers. Eli stood with his father at the front of the church and watched his beautiful bride as she walked down the aisle. After the ceremony, they held a dinner in the field of wildflowers that lay just outside of town. There were blossoms that went on as far as the eye could see. Reminding one of the stories the elders told the children, as the light faded from the sky and the tables were aglow with candlelight and lanterns, the scene looked almost magical. It was the greatest day of the new couple's lives. In the two years that followed, the only happiness they found was in each other. At first, all seemed to go well. Matthew was practically a new man. Eleonora's happy presence was a balm to him and he began to let go of the anger and pain he had carried around for nearly 20 years. He relaxed and started showing real kindness towards Eli and for the first time they exchanged pleasant words more frequently than angry ones but two months after his son's marriage Matthew complained of a pain in his shoulder then he simply sat down in the field and died. Though Eli grieved He knew his parents were finally reunited and that his father was at peace. Still, he couldn't help but feel that he had finally connected with his father, only to lose him. Not one year later, sweet Jeanne was playing on the street with her friends when a passing horse spooked and ran straight at the children. Jeanne was trampled, but somehow made it back home before collapsing. That day, she went to sleep. Her breath was even, Her heart still beat, but her eyes never fluttered. Eleanora spent every moment at her sister's side, smoothing her golden hair, dribbling water between the child's rosy lips. The village healer sprinkled some herbs around the bed and then proclaimed that there was nothing to be done. The Suttons refused to give up. Leaving Eleanora to nurse Jeanne, they hitched their horses to a cart and set out towards a village nine days to the west where someone had heard that a real doctor lived. They were determined to find the man and bring him back to tend to their youngest child. Three days later, while Eleonora slept mere feet away, Jeanne quietly drew her last breath. Eleonora woke to check on her sister to find her cold. Her poor little arms were stiff at her side. Jeanne was buried in the small churchyard. The entire village turned out to support Eleonora and Eli in their grief. After that, Eleanora could not sleep. She refused to go to bed with Eli, choosing instead to sit up late into the night with a cup of tea and stare down the road for hours, waiting for her parents to come home. The Suttons had never returned. They knew the dangers when they set off that day. The roads leading towards the town were full of stories of robbers, Eleanor had begged her mother to stay with her, but she knew a group of two would be safer than one. She had hugged her parents fiercely the morning they left, promising she would take the best care of Jeanne. The afternoon before Jeanne died, Eleanor had been sitting in the small window at the front of the cabin. The biggest fear that she had ever felt drifted through her. It wasn't until Jeanne passed that she knew something had happened to her parents. The drought must be in other places, with panicked people everywhere. Had her family been taken for their supplies? Eleanora kept her hope. For five months after her parents left, she stood guard in the family's cabin, the hot tea in her hands, her eyes trained hard on the horizon, looking for them to crest the land. Nothing. Without Eli, Eleanora may have never moved on. His sunny yellow aura brought her out of the darkness and kept her in the light, and in turn he took comfort in his wife. Eli loved the way she looked in the early morning light, the soft rays making love to the contours of her cheekbones. Her smile held the magic to make his heart flutter the same way it did the first time he saw her. Then the hot, dry summer was upon them. The crops shriveled, the cows died of thirst, but they continued to struggle forward. In October, Eleonora found that she was with child, but before it even quickened, it was gone. Eleanor had thought of the baby as a gift from the universe. As soon as she knew, she had crawled into Eli's arms and told him that she was absolutely sure it was a girl, and she would name her Rose, because roses were such a beautiful, physical expression of love, just like their daughter would have been. She was distraught and spent several weeks in bed while Aunt Aggie tended to the household. Eli secretly believed it was for the best that they lost their child then— Instead of months later to starvation, like several of the other village infants. But he did not dare say it aloud. Eleanor had become a fragile shell of her former self. Although Aunt Aggie did her best to coax broth and what little cheese she had left down Eleanor's throat, she refused to eat. Eli was more afraid than ever that he would lose her, too. And then the stranger arrived. Eli was jolted from his thoughts as a hand reached out to clasp his slight shoulder. "'My man,' an unfamiliar voice said. "'Are you well? I have already held you twice.' The stranger dropped his hand and stepped back. "'I'm passing through and meant to ask where you could purchase some supplies, but from the troubled look on your face I'd guess there's little to spare.' A chilly wind swept down the road, brushing Eli's dark hair into his green eyes. "'No, sir,' he replied.
1: Download the free Angie mobile app today, or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.
0: If you would have told me half a year ago, this would have been our sad state. I wouldn't have believed you. The stranger's smile dropped into a frown. The same had been true everywhere I've gone. The elders of my town say that hot summers are always followed by bitterly cold winters. They predict countless deaths from this cold alone. "'We'll most likely starve first,' Eli muttered. The man sighed. "'Well, sir, I might as well make myself useful as I pass through. I see you have a downed wall there on that building.' Eli followed the man's hand as it pointed to a broken pile of wood slats that had been lying on the ground for the past two weeks, like a metaphorical reminder of the village falling. "'I'll help you repair it if you can find a few more hands to help.' Thank you, Eli said automatically, still staring blankly at the half-fallen timbers. I'm afraid we don't have much to offer you in return. I have the food I need, though I would gladly accept a place to lay my head. I've spent too many nights beneath trees. They're lovely company, but alas, with the cooler nights they do more harm than good. He held out his hand. I'm Gregor. Eli and Gregor rounded up the village stronger men to dismantle and rebuild the fallen wall. These moments would usually be full of talk and stories, but the stress of reality and the need to conserve as much energy as possible, they worked like a needle and thread in the villager's lips. Gregor worked quietly, noticing how thin all the men were, how heavy their tools seemed in their hands. He paused in his work, standing up straight to stretch his back. "'There is a town to the east, about a thirteen days' walk from here, one with plenty of food and assistance.' Eli wiped the droplets of sweat from his forehead with a dirty hand before resting it on his bony hip. We heard it's more like a month's travel. He looked at the man quizzically. Nay, it's not that far. This is my second trek there, and my last. I was staying in a forest community about a six-day's walk west.' Gregor pointed the direction that he came. "'We were dealing with the same as you folk, but worse. I begged them to come with me, but they were too afraid.' Eli could see the man's eyes, that they were a heavy story behind those words, though he did not feel it was his place to ask. Some stories are best kept untold. Some can unsettle a soul. I have a lass where I'm going, Gregor continued. Or at least I used to. A kind, sturdy woman. I should have never have stopped chasing. I just still hope she's there waiting for me. He turned to Eli. You should come with me. A glimmer of hope sprung in Eli's chest, but just as quickly it was snuffed out. "'We could not oppose upon another our town,' he said. "'They would not be able to feed and house all of us. "'Nay, your village is small compared to theirs. "'A few more people make no difference.' Eli returned his attention to the slat he was hammering into place. He thought about how he had spent the morning trying to ration the remaining food and how he was unable to figure out how to make it last.' Supplies were that low for everyone. Even if they combined all they had, he did not see how the villagers would last the winter. This new city that Gregor spoke of might be their only option for survival. If they put faith in the stranger and pooled their resources, they should make the journey and arrive on full stomachs. That evening, Eli had quiet words with the village elders, who in turn called a meeting of the residents Gregor again explained about the town to the east and how they could find plenty of food and shelter. I do not feel easy about this, said Michael Burger. All we have is this man's wood, and such a town exists? What if it doesn't? Why should they welcome us? I speak the truth, Gregor replied. But how did they manage to escape the drought, when the rest of us have suffered for months? Aunt Aggie wanted to know. They have many underground springs from which the water flows continuously, the trader replied. By the end of the meeting, most of the villagers were willing to set out to find the town, but there were still so many that had reservations on taking such a risk. "'What other choice do we have?' Aunt Aggie asked. "'The way I see it, we're going to die if we stay here.' "'We will die if the city turns us away,' shouted Michael Berger. "'Maybe,' Angie replied, "'but at least we would have a chance. "'If we do nothing, we have no chance.' "'We must at least give this more thought.' Elder Karen said. I'm leaving in the morning, Gregor said, but I will draw you a map to the route to the city. The villagers returned to their homes to consider the situation. That night, Gregor slept on the floor before Eli's hearth, and by morning, he was gone, leaving a drawn map on the Bellamy table. By late afternoon, the town had reconvened. As they looked at each other, they knew that they had all reached the same conclusion, even Michael Berger. They all felt the hunger pains. They all saw the empty stock. Winter was a horrible time to travel, but it was either that or die. To a villager, they decided to make the journey. The next day was full of preparation and, some might say, hope. Yes, it was terrifying, but they knew they had no other choice. They turned their fear into excitement as they called back and forth with their neighbors. "'All that could be packed was loaded onto whatever form of transportation was available. "'The wagons and carts were filled with bags of grain, "'jugs of water, and sides of salted meat. "'Looking at the combined rations, "'they saw that they had enough food and water for nearly three weeks, "'if they all ate their fill, six if they rationed. "'Blankets, boots, warm coats, and lard for chapped hands "'were stuffed into every inch of space.' A few women tucked what little jewelry or other precious items that they could spare into their pockets, but left everything else in a safe place. Aunt Aggie even wrapped her mother's best teacup in a length of muslin and hid it under the seat of the privy. Eleanor spent the day beside the grave of her sister, pressing dried flowers into the frozen earth. Eli watched her from the window. He thought of going to her, convincing her to come inside the warmth of his arms— but he knew she would refuse. He finished packing their cart alone. When he awoke in the morning, he had turned towards his wife. He saw that she was smiling. It was such a different sight than the one he had laid his eyes on the night before. She had returned her smile. Today is the day, she said, touching her delicate fingertips to his lips. I was up early. Your tea is ready. I'm going to go hitch up the horses. She spun out of bed. Eli put his hand on the warm spot of the bed that was imprinted with her shape, the loose threads snagging on his calloused fingertips. The street outside was full of horses, mules, and carts. Children were laughing. Their parents were nervous but wore tentative smiles on their faces. Everyone was ready. There was a light buzz in the air that Eli had never felt before in his life, a sense of adventure and hope he had only read about. Aunt Aggie was one of the first people ready, having bolted and locked the door on her shop before climbing on the seat of her own small wagon. When the entire village had assembled, they set off east in a long line. Aunt Aggie's cart was in front of the Bellamy's wagon, and Alice and Pierre Travers were behind. They all spent the day calling out to each other, laughing and pointing out interesting features in the landscape. Near dusk, the party stopped for the evening and made camp. Those in carts or wagons stretched large quilts or tarps over the tops to create shelters. The villagers who had ridden horses or walked created makeshift tents using whatever materials they could. They cooked their food around tiny campfires and retired early, exhausted from the first day of travel. Alice rang her bell and Eleonora answered. In the morning they packed up as quickly as possible and ate their meals on the roads. The day passed more slowly as the excitement of the journey died away. It was the third day when the strange symptoms started to show. The head of the Jones family, Thomas, was the first to fall ill. He awoke that morning, moaning terribly. A fevered chill crawled like pinpricks across his body. He had left the shelter of his own cart to fetch water, but after a few steps he collapsed to the ground. His wife, Anne, and a few men rushed to him. Eli watched as they rolled him over. Thomas's face was a molted grayish purple. The people stepped back in shock, Anne clutching their newborn son to her chest. Water, Thomas gasped. Eli hurried to the closest container, helping the man sit up. He tipped a dribble of water into Thomas's mouth. We must keep going, an elder said terrorously. As the villagers hurried away to finish breakfast and pack up, Eli helped Thomas climb back into the cart and covered him with as many blankets as the family had brought. The village healer brought an infusion of herbs for Thomas to drink to help reduce the fever. Knowing Eleanor was more than capable of driving their own wagon, Eli hitched up the Jones horses and climbed up next to Anne and the baby. The villagers moved out of camp, knowing they needed to travel a full day before they could rest again. Thomas spent the day in a deep sleep. The air might have been cold, but the sweat glistened on his forehead. He occasionally moaned in his slumber, and when they took a break to rest the horses at noon, Eli saw that his fever had worsened. By the time they stopped for the night in a clearing, Thomas was too weak to leave the cart, yet he claimed he could feel the fever breaking and would be better by morning. His words gave the townsfolk some relief, as it looked as if the fever had been a simple sickness— "'one cured by rest. "'At first light, the villagers were awakened by screams. "'Eli rushed from his wagon to the Jones. "'Anne was huddled in the corner farthest from his husband, "'crying and rocking the baby back and forth. "'Thomas was stiff and cold. "'He had passed in his sleep. "'A small pool of coagulated blood lay on the blanket beside his gaping mouth. "'His eyes opened ever so slightly.' Anne's panicked cries were soon joined by others as they awoke to find their family members shaking and sweating with fever themselves. Eli and Elder Karen wrapped Thomas's body in the blood-stained blanket and set him at the edge of the clearing, while they could determine what to do. By mid-morning, a quarter of the villagers had been struck by the mysterious fever. Eli and Eleonora were racked with fear, but at the same time felt relief that neither of them had developed any of the symptoms. They retreated to the safety of their cart, while the healer went from wagon to wagon, attending to the sick. He had never seen such a thing, and could only suggest keeping the patients warm and frequently giving them water mixed with his herbal potion to keep them from drying out. Those who had ill family members drew their carts to the other side of the clearing, away from those who hadn't been touched by the sickness. The camp grew quiet as the villagers huddled in their own wagons beneath blankets or isolated fires where they stared unseeing into the flames. In the silence of the afternoon, Eli walked to the eastern side of the hill with the map to see if he could see how close the city was. He studied the drawing the cold air tugging at his chapped, uncovered skin when he saw it. Below him, on the downward slope of the hill, was a strange-looking mass, a snow-covered hump protruding from the ground. But something about this shape gave him pause. With a frown on his face, Eli began to pick his way down the hill. He had just about convinced himself that he was merely looking at a rock when he saw a set of thick leather boots resting on the lee of a snowdrift. He realized he was looking at a man. Hello? Sir? Eli's voice trembled slightly. He moved closer to the body, and the wind slid down the hill. He saw the flutter of a beard. With the feeling of dread, Eli grasped the man's shoulder and turned him over. It was Gregor. His lifeless eyes gazed up at Eli. A dark line of frozen blood ran from his mouth down his neck. Eli reeled back in horror, recalling the man's word about the forest community he had been staying at, that they were worse off than Black Creek. Gregor had infected them. Eli staggered back up the hill, calling for the elders. He blurted out what he had found as the villagers peeked out of their wagons, and several made their way down the hill to look at the body. The healer was the first to return to camp. "'I can't help you, any of you,' he said slowly. This is like nothing I have seen before. Thomas perished of the fever in less than a day. If you already have the symptoms, there is no stopping it. What are you saying? demanded Michael Berger. We're all going to die. I hope not, the healer responded. But my medicine didn't help Thomas, and it may not help anyone else. If you rode in the same wagon with someone who woke up with a fever, you most likely have the sickness too. The healer hung his head elder Karen returned to the people now, tears in his eyes. We laughed at the priest. Now look at us. We cannot travel with so many ill. So as I see it, we only have one option. We stay here until the sickness passes. If the map is correct, then the city is six days away. There's enough food to last for at least a fortnight. Stay in your shelters with your kin. Leave only to cook and use the privy. Watch the sun rise three times. Then... On the fourth day, we will all meet where we stand. He looked around at the solemn people gathered there. This is the darkest time yet, my friends. Say the words you need to say to God. The villagers looked at each other from the small circles they had created with their family members before pulling their silent children closer. Everyone then turned around and walked to their wagons and makeshift tents like it was a funeral march. Eleanor was about to crawl into the wagon when she heard a bell ringing. Glancing around, she saw that Alice and her husband had pulled their wagon next to the Bellamise. She smiled at her friend and then dug her own bell out of her pack and rang it in response. The snow came heavily that night, cushioning itself around the shelters, creating an insulated pocket of warmth. The first morning was full of soft sobs, as some of those who had shown symptoms expired. Families spoke in whispers inside their wagons as they prayed together. The few who ventured outside gave each other encouraging smiles, though some avoided their neighbors altogether. Eli called to Aunt Aggie, who responded that she was feeling just fine, just bored. Eli and Eleanor spent the first day of confinement reminiscing about their childhoods, telling each other stories that they had not heard before but terror lurked just under the surface of their words. They shared a plate of salted pork and a small loaf of bread for dinner, then pulled up the blankets as the sun sank behind the horizon. eleonora believed that a person never got over death, never healed completely from someone leaving you forever. You just learned to tuck all the memories into them, into every fold of your being, and let them become a part of you. Since losing her family and then the baby, she had become more paranoid about losing Eli. If this is the end, I do not mind as long as we die together, Eleonora whispered as she fell back hard onto her down pillow and they drifted off to sleep. But Eli awoke in the dark to feel her cool hand testing his forehead every half hour. He was not sure if she had even slept. The next day was quieter though heart-wrenching sobs echoed across the clearing around noon. Eli left the wagon to water and feed the horses, and as he turned, he saw three snow-covered bodies laying in front of some of the tents. He could only guess that they had died in the night, but their families were too weak to do more than remove them from their shelters. He did the cooking that day to spare his wife from the gruesome sight. That evening, Eleanor and Alice rang their bells gently, The noise seemed to shatter the stillness. The third morning started with slow moans that dwindled into silence before the sun disappeared into the trees. Eleonora was becoming restless and agitated with the cries unsettling her. She clasped her hands to her ears and murmured songs to herself to block out the soft sounds of grief. All day, Eli thought he heard a slow muttering among the tents, but now he wasn't sure if what he heard was merely the wind tricking his ears. As the sun faded from the sky, Eleanor reached for her bell and rang it quickly. Flinching at its cheerful toll, the other bell did not ring. Eleanor waited a minute, then rang it again. There was no answer. She glanced frantically at Eli, and then moved to ring her bell a third time. He reached out to silence the sound, but she pulled away. "'She did not ring back,' she said in a panicked voice. "'Alice is probably visiting the privy,' Eli said quietly. Or perhaps she's already asleep. he trained his eyes on his wife's fingers, which were squeezing the handle of the delicate bell tightly. she had experienced so much loss in the past two years, how could she bear any more?' The darkness seemed to come on much faster that evening. Maybe it was the weight of knowing that in the morning the healer would call the people out. Everyone would be forced to see who was alive and who had not survived. That night, Eli and Eleonora sat with their foreheads pressed together, hands and legs intertwined, and prayed to whatever would listen that tomorrow they would find most of the villagers spared. They spoke softly about continuing on to the city, "'where they would be saved from the long winter. "'It was not the light that awoke Eli the next morning, "'but a horse's whine. "'The sun must have been high "'as glorious light filled the covered wagon. "'As he gently stroked Eleanor's hair, "'she stretched and turned towards him. "'Today will be a good day, my love,' she said, smiling. "'I wished for it, so it will be.' "'She reached up and stroked his face.' So it should be, Eli replied, grabbing her hand and kissing it. The sun is a good sign. He and Eleonora hurriedly rose, pulled on their warmest clothes, and they opened the flap of their tarp. The light was dancing off the snow momentarily, and it blinded them. A gust of early winter air hit their faces and stung their lungs. When their sight cleared, they saw that they were the only ones awake. No footsteps were pressed into the night's snowfall. That's strange. Eli frowned. It must be mid-morning already. He gazed hard into the sun as it sat in the center of the sky. Hello, Eleonora said hesitantly. No one stirred. Eli took a few steps from the wagon and turned to his wife. Go back inside, my love. I'll find out what I can. Eleanor opened her mouth as if to question him, but then she nodded and slipped back under the covering. Eli watched to make sure the tarp was back down before he turned his attention to the campsite. The flap to the healer's tent was open, a blanket partially pulled out into the snow. Eli covered his mouth with the fabric of his shirt and slowly squatted down to look inside. The healer lay unmoving his heart pounding in his chest, Eli leaned in just far enough to confirm what he had suspected. The man was dead. His eyes looked eerily up into Eli's as the irises were frozen white. A smear of blood was crusted upon his jaw. The hair arose on Eli's neck as he backed out of the shelter. Suddenly, he was afraid of what the silence that now lay heavily over the camp meant. Seeing him, a horse whined, and then another. There was still no sound from any of the villagers. Before he ventured any further, he broke off a branch of a tree. He trudged through the snow to Aunt Aggie's small cart, where she had constructed a quilt as a roof. The quilt had collapsed under the weight of the snow, and there was no movement from underneath. Eli only had to lift a corner to see one of Aunt Aggie's thin legs sticking out from beneath the blanket. The skin was grey, a flesh frozen, Eli choked back a sob for the woman who had raised him, but he knew he had to see if anyone else was alive before he could grieve. He held his breath as he approached Alice's wagon, where she and her husband Pierre would have been snuggling their five-month-old daughter. Eli used the branch to push aside their tarp, but he had little hope. Still, the shock sent him reeling. The family inside were dead, their faces marred with blood, The baby lay at Alice's side like a discarded doll. Eli backed up and then stumbled and fell into the snow. He sat in the snow for a few minutes, his head in his hands. Finally, roused by the wetness snoking into his trousers, Eli got to his feet and looked around the clearing at all the other wagons. The horses were now eyeing him eagerly in the hopes of being fed, but he ignored them for now. He wanted them to call out again but he knew if he did so, it would scare Eleonora, and that he was not ready to face his own discoveries. Eli stepped over the snow-covered lumps he had found on the second day and peered into the shelters, his hand covering his mouth. With every new body he found, his ragged gasps grew louder, and he did his best to stifle them. At last, Eli knew the horrible truth. There was no one left Everyone he had known his entire life was gone. They were people he had known from his childhood. Friends who had attended his wedding and those he had sat with on church on Sundays. All gone. All ghosts. Eli heard a muffled cry and turned. Eleonora was standing beside the wagon, her fur wrapped around her face, making her seem brighter than the snow even from across the clearing he could see the tear tracks on her cheeks as soon as his eyes met hers she turned and she ran towards alice's wagon alice she cried running into the open tarp eleanor no eli followed her as fast as he could but he was too far away he did not want her to discover what he had seen he wished he could wrap her up into warm blankets and protect her from this horror. Eleonora's screams tore through the air, so loudly it echoed through the trees. It was the kind of primal scream that only comes from a moment that changes a life forever. Eli managed to reach Eleonora just as she started to stretch out a hand for Alice's baby. He pulled her back and held her tight. No, you cannot touch them. Eli cried as he watched his wife's heart break yet again. She sobbed as he turned towards her chest and clung to her with all his strength. The color is gone, Eleonora gasped. I can't see her color any more. Eli picked her up like a doll and pulled her into their wagon. He tried to think of words to comfort her, but there were none. She needed silence. She needed to sleep. He needed to turn off the world for her. Another horse cried out and Eli reluctantly left Eleonora with a kiss. He went from animal to animal, giving them minimum amounts of feed and water. He did not know how long they had gone without sustenance, and if he gave them their normal amounts, they would eat it too quickly and become ill. While the horses ate, Eli went to the carriage that held the last of the supplies and saw that there was plenty of food left. He rearranged everything until he had room for the rest of the horse feed and their own belongings. Once the horses were finished with their meal, he hitched up a team to the supply wagon and drove it over to his own. There, he found Eleonora laying on her side, staring blankly at the wall. He took her warm hand in his cold one. We should get moving, he said. We cannot stay here. Eleonora slowly looked up at him but her eyes were blank. When he tenderly pulled her up into a sitting position, she did not resist. Eli remained silent, letting her sit numbly, wrapped in a blanket as he transferred all their belongings into the larger wagon before leading the remaining animals to the rear, securing their leads. He had no intention of leaving any of them behind to starve. With Eli's help, Eleonora managed to climb up onto the seat of the large wagon. He made sure that she was wrapped warmly before he snapped the reins and moved out of camp. Only as they pulled away from the campsite did Eleanor turn and stare at the snow-covered tents. She sat like that until they crested the hill and the camp was no longer visible. As night fell, Eli found a flat, tree-covered area to set the wagon and put up the tarp. A steep cliff dropped off the other side, but with the horses tethered to the tree line, they would be safe. After he fed and watered the animals, he rubbed them down. Eli heard a low melody coming from the wagon. It was Eleonora. Love, he called out. She climbed out from beneath the tarp. I feel better, she said softly. What has happened has happened, and I cannot change that. I will pretend this is only a story, and once we reach the city, we will be safe. Then, and only then... I will let myself think of it. After all, I do have you, and that is all that matters to me. She wrapped her arms around her chest and continued humming her melody. Eli took in a deep breath and continued brushing the horses. Later that night, Eleanor tucked herself into Eli's arms and closed her eyes as though she hadn't a care in the world. He kissed her hair and drifted off to sleep. It was just before dawn that Eli awoke to the sharp sound of Eleonora's gasp. No, she cried. No, no, no. Eleonora, what's wrong? Eli said, trying to push himself up. His head felt like it had the weight of a boulder, and with a groan he sank back into his pillows. Eleonora scuttled to the far corner of the wagon with a look of fear in her eyes. Oh, God, Eli whispered as he reached up a leaden arm to feel the slick sweat on his forehead. He tried again to sit up, but he did not have the strength to move. No, Eli said softly into the morning air. How is this happening now? You'll be fine, Eleonora said quickly, sounding irrational. You must be. I cannot go on without you. Yeah, Eli agreed in a whisper. I'll get better. Eli could see the sanity leaving Eleonora's eyes as the panic filled them. But as the sun crept over the trees, Eli worsened. They both knew deep down what was going to happen. His breath came in short gasps; His body felt as though it was on fire. Eleonora brought him the water he begged for. But as the day wore on, it was clear that he was fading fast. Eleonora, he murmured, I'm so sorry. The whisper that came from Eleanor's mouth was barely audible. We were supposed to be together forever what will I do without you? Her question went unanswered. Eli. He was asleep. Eleonora was barely aware of the tears that bored from her face. She laid her head on his chest and listened to the strong beat of his heart, yet she knew that he would likely be gone by the morning's light, gone like all the others in their sleep. Even in the days that they were confined to the wagon, Eleanor had never let herself truly think about what she would do if one of them became ill. She knew that if she started thinking about it, she would never be able to stop. Eleanor sat back on her heels, holding Eli's hand in hers. We were supposed to die together, she murmured. Her husband's teeth began to chatter, and she drew the blanket up under his chin "'and tenderly tucked it around his body. "'She clasped his hand and kissed it one last time. "'I love you,' she whispered. "'Eleanora maneuvered herself out of the wagon "'without pausing to put on her shoes. "'The snow's coldness would not bother her much longer. "'She would not watch Eli die. "'She could not stand seeing the line of blood "'that she knew would soon trickle from his mouth. "'She would soon fall ill as well.' and she would not suffer alone next to her husband's cold body. Eli had warned her of the cliff behind the wagon, but she put one foot in front of the other as she slowly moved towards the deep gorge. It seemed only moments later she felt her toes wrap around the cliff's edge. She gazed down upon bare treetops and steeled her resolve. She closed her eyes and took a final, deep breath. "'raising her arms to the sky as she prepared to fall. "'Do not do that, girl!' a haggard voice called from the left side. "'Eleanora gasped as a rough hand grabbed her arm "'and pulled her back from the edge of the cliff. "'She spun around to see a squat, elderly woman wearing a frown. "'What exactly are you doing?' "'Eleanora took a moment to collect her composure. "'Excuse me,' she responded. "'But what business is it of yours?' "'Well now,' the woman said. It looks to me like you were about to jump, and I don't fancy myself cleaning your remains off my property. What are you talking about? Eleonora said angrily. The woman grabbed the arm again and pointed to the gorge below. Eleonora could just make out a stone house at the base of the cliff. My house is down there, she said. If you're trying to kill yourself, I'd greatly appreciate if you would find another way. Eleonora stared at her in disbelief. What exactly is it that troubles a pretty young woman such as yourself? My Eli is dying, Eleonora said. I cannot live without him. Oh, pish posh, the woman said, flapping her hand. Plenty of women live without their menfolk. You're not the first to lose a man, and you certainly won't be the last. You don't understand, Eleonora protested. The disease that is killing him will soon take me too." In that case, the woman responded curiously, let me take a look. She turned and trotted towards the wagon. No, Eleonora cried, rushing to catch up with her. Do not get any closer. Everyone who has gotten sick dies within a day's time. She threw her arms out to stop the woman. Ha! Nothing can take me out. The woman replied gruffly as she pushed Eleonora aside and yanked back the tarp. Eleonora looked desperately as the woman exclaimed Eli's feverish body. "'Your man has the plague,' she announced. "'It has wiped out thousands, but it will not touch me. It wouldn't dare.' She pointed at Eleonora and laughed. Eleanor stared at the old woman in terror. She could not believe that in what should have been her final moment she had been found by a lunatic. The woman sprang out of the wagon and hurried off as Eleonora gaped after her. "'Come with me, girl.' "'called the woman over her shoulder. "'For a moment, Eleonora hesitated, "'but the woman called. "'I'm not asking!' "'Blinking her eyes in confusion, "'she followed the small figure. "'Besides, what does she have to lose?' "'She followed the old woman to a hidden track in the cliff, "'and they slowly picked their way "'through the bare brush and brambles. "'The woman scrambled down with the skill of a mountain goat. "'But Eleonora took her time, "'lest she fall and break her neck,' When they reached the bottom of the gorge, she saw that the small house was right ahead. It looked welcoming, like a cozy cottage out of a fairy tale. When the woman opened the door, a tantalizing scent wafted out. Eleonora entered and was immediately enveloped by the warmth that a cooking fire gave off. A kettle hung over the fire, stew by the looks of it. Eleanora breathed in and felt surprisingly comforted. The rest of the cottage was sparsely decorated with heavy wooden furniture taking up most of the room. A man sat at the table, sharpening a knife. "'This is my son, Alexander,' the woman motioned towards me as a man walked to a basin. "'Hello,' Eleanor said apprehensively, feeling embarrassed. She could only imagine how she looked, probably half-wild with her wind-blown hair, her face chafed by the tears and the cold. Her torn stockings were all she wore on her feet. Alexander nodded as a way of acknowledgment. The woman slowly made her way across the stone floor, a tin cup in her hands. "'I have what'll cure you and your love up there,' she said, offering the cup. Eleanor glanced at Alexander to see what he made of this crazy proclamation, but his face was expressionless. "'What could possibly cure this disease?' Eleanor asked. "'Our village healer said he had never heard of anything like this before.' "'Well, he's never met me, did he? Worth a chance, is it not?' You both die anyways, so what's the worst that could happen? Eleanor looked at the tin cup suspiciously, as it was filled with a dark liquid. Still, the old woman was right. What did she have to lose? She reached out, and she took the cup. Now pinch your nose and swallow it down, the woman instructed. Eleonora took a breath and gulped the liquid. It was warm and tasted slightly unpleasant. The hot feeling shot from her throat to her stomach, and she shuddered. "'This one is for your love at the top of the hill,' the woman handed Eleonora the other cup. "'My old bones can only make that climb once a day, but Alexander will take you.' The walk back to the wagon made Eleonora's heart pound, not from exertion, but fear. What if they were too late and Eli was already dead? But when they reached the wagon, she was relieved to see that Eli was still breathing, his chest rising and falling regularly.' Alexander pulled Eli's limp body into a sitting position, and Eleanora tipped the cup between his lips. He coughed a few times as his body instinctively tried to swallow the foreign liquid. Only then did Eleanora notice that the liquid was a deep red hue. The darkness of the cabin, she had not been able to discern its color, and she recoiled slightly as it dripped down Eli's chin-like blood. "'What is this?' she asked Alexander in horror. "'It doesn't matter,' the man replied, his dark eyes looking threatening. "'He needs to drink it all or it won't work.' With shaking hands, Eleonora continued to pour the thick concoction into Eli's mouth. When the cup was empty, she set it down and concentrated on Eli. "'How long until he's healed?' she asked. "'It's already working,' Alexander laid Eli back down on the blankets. "'You'll feel like new in three days.' "'Suddenly,' There was a glint of light as he pulled something out of his belt. He moved like lightning. A sickening crack filled the air as he plunged the knife into Eli's chest. What are you doing? Eleonora cried, lurching backwards. She threw herself off the wagon and hit the ground hard, but immediately she was back on her feet and running. The horses reared and shrieked in terror as Alexander easily grabbed her around the waist and threw her down. I'll explain when you wake up, he said calmly. Eleanor's scream abruptly ended as the knife slid through her chest like butter. Welcome to the family.